This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. And this podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Brad Frischmann, author of Reengineering Humanity. Humans have always developed tools and technologies, and they often augment who we are or enable us to grow, develop, pursue our passions and develop capabilities. The big idea is that we're on a slippery slope path toward a world in which more and more of our lives, of who we are and who we can be as individuals and collectively, is managed and governed by supposedly smart techno-social systems. The idea that one of the most important constitutional questions in a lowercase c sense for us to be considering in the 21st century is how are we going to sustain our freedom to be off, to be free from the engineering, engineered influence of others. We're building the world for our children, for future generations, and sometimes we don't stop to think about whether it's the whether we're happy about the world we're building why we're building it a certain way as opposed to another way. This is Brad. Brad is the author of Reengineering Humanity and a Charles Witcher Endowed University Professor in Law, Business and Economics at Villanova University. In this role, he promotes cross-campus research, programming and collaboration. He fosters high-visibility academic pursuits at the national and international levels and positions Villanova as a thought leader and innovator at the intersection of law, business and economics. Brad's work has appeared in leading scholar publications, including Columbia Law Review, Journal of Institutional Economics, and the Review of Law and Economics. His research spans across various disciplines and topics, infrastructure, knowledge commons, and the techno-social engineering of humans, i.e. the relationships between the techno-social world and humanity. This is what the scope of his latest book, Reengineering Humanity, is all about. And that triggered me. Hence, I invited Brad to my podcast. We explore the evolving impact of technology and in particular the impact it has on all of us in our day-to-day professional life. We discuss examples of how we engineer ourselves and how we are engineered by others. In particular, the latter has become a big risk to all of us. And therefore we should ensure that the focus shifts to making humans better and more valuable rather than using smart technology to actually make the user dumber. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, that we need to be very considerate about the type of solutions we're building and why we're building them in a certain way. Simply realize that humanity's techno-social dilemma is already large enough. Second thing you will learn is that the real value of technology potential is in human augmentation, i.e. becoming better. But only if it's in the light of who we want to be, 
how we can remain having our choices and how we can remain being different. And lastly, that we should challenge ourselves whenever we use the word smart in relation to our solutions. How is it smarter? What benefit will it give and to whom? Too often, it's the user that actually is made dumber. So Brett, thank you for being on this podcast. To get started with it, can you introduce yourself and explain a little bit about what your passions are about technology in general? Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. So thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation. Well, I'm the, the Charles Widger Endowed University Professor in Law, Business and Economics at Villanova University. And I'm also sort of affiliated with Stanford for their Center Net for Internet and Society, and a, as well as a trustee at the Nexus Center in, for the Internet and Society in Torino at the Politecnico. I, tend, I teach in the law school, although the courses I teach will be, especially here at Villanova, will be open to students in business and, and economics and technology and engineering school as well. For many years, I've taught intellectual property courses, internet law. I also sort of teach privacy as well. My writing and research spans a pretty broad spectrum. So roughly speaking, about a third of what I do focuses on shared infrastructure and the, the sort of economics and policy and legal issues about infrastructure interpreted broadly to include things like roads and the electricity grid, but also things like ideas and basic research. I all, another sort of big, maybe roughly a third of what I do focuses on something called knowledge commons. So communities that collectively produce and share knowledge using sort of Eleanor Ostrom's style approach to studying those communities. And then the another sort of the other big chunk of what I do is focusing on the relationships between technology and humanity. And yes. that's the, the latest book that I've published and I think we're, we're going to be talking about sort of drawn and is sort of in that area and I'm continuing to research there. I guess Certainly. in terms of passions, what I'm interesting to talk about passions, you don't often do that, uh, but I'm passionate about knowledge. I guess that's why I'm an academic. I love teaching. I love research. I'm passionate about interdisciplinary research, bridging disciplines, working across disciplines, taking lessons and ideas from different disciplines and exploring them in a systematic and rigorous way. I'm also quite passionate about collaborative research. So much of the, the work I've done in the last 15 or 20 years has been with others, with other people, both legal academics, but also with economists, with political scientists, with data scientists, with technologists. And so I'm pretty passionate about exploring techno-social systems that we're building and that we live within, sort of exploring our lives, but you know, from an academically rigorous and interdisciplinary perspective. Cool. That's a lot of stuff. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I'm passionate about knowledge, I said. <laughs> but that's an interesting topic in itself. I, uh, I actually had an interview last week with a company called Unanimous AI, and they have come up with a, with a technology called Swarm AI, and they are actually bringing together groups in real time to share knowledge and to actually then produce better outcomes, better results than AI could pr produce by itself. So that maybe also kind of is, is the interesting link to, to your book because your book is titled Reengineering Humanity. The reason why I invited you, must be clear then, is I, I share a passion for technology as well. And the purpose of my podcast is 
to well to share knowledge or to share knowledge to share ideas and and visions about what we, what value we can unlock when we are bringing together people and technology in the right way because my belief is if you augment people you get better results like the one and one equals three type of philosophy is that also right. the 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 idea behind your book yeah i mean it's interesting so the humans have always developed tools and technologies and they often augment who we are or enable us to grow develop pursue our passions and develop capabilities and you know sometimes they replace old capabilities so it's sort of like our relationship with the technologies we develop is an interesting one to interrogate and study and that's sort of the book is certainly about that sort of how to think about when technologies we're using do in fact augment and when maybe they don't so certainly we don't want to assume because we've got a new novel technology that it's necessarily going to augment the, the, the difficulty is always sort of uh -huh. evaluating and assessing when it does yeah what's part of the idea of writing this book i mean what's what issue did you see or what conclusion did you hope to reveal with it yeah it's interesting because the you know you'd sent me by email you're like so i thought this was an interesting question you said what's the big idea behind your book right and yeah. i was i actually looked at that and i thought about it for a bit i'm like huh I get asked that all the time and I never have a good answer. And it's partly because I don't think there's a simple, there's not really a single big idea. There's a, there's a bunch. I guess if I'm pressed, I would, I suppose I'd say something like the big idea is that we're on a slippery slope path toward a world in which more and more of our lives of who we are and who we can be as individuals and collectively is managed and governed by supposedly smart techno-social systems. So in a sense, the idea is that the seductive promises of smart digital network tech, you know, the promises of ch easy, cheap, efficient, convenient, convenient, happy lives might be a siren's call for humanity on the whole. Yeah. And so the book, the book sort of rigorously examines, but it also illustrates with a, a wide array of, of different examples, seemingly unrelated or disparate examples, I, I should say about how we engineer ourselves and also how we're engineered by others. So I suppose I'd throw out like some of the other sort of big ideas are include, and here's just a couple that I was thinking of in response to your question, that the, the real risk of mind control, the idea of a free will wager akin to Pascal's wager about God, reverse Turing test to evaluate when humans are engineered to behave like simple machines. <laughs> and possibly in terms of a conclusion, the idea that one of the most important constitutional questions in a lowercase c sense for us to be considering in the 21st century is how are we going to sustain our freedom to be off, to be free from the engineering, engineered influence of others? And so I guess I'd, I guess I'd have to say that the book is filled with big ideas. Each chapter has at least one. And so that was why it took us six years or five or six years to write the book is that sort of each chapter was sort of this carefully researched and crafted, you know, I don't want to say a product really, it's just sort of a, a carefully crafted researched piece of uh, work, scholarship, that we tried to make accessible to a, to a lay general audience while at the same time sort of conveying knowledge, conveying big ideas getting people to think really, really hard about their lives and the sort of the world we're all building 
together. Like we're building the world for our children, for future generations. And sometimes we don't stop to think about whether it's the, whether we're happy about the world we're building and why we're building it a certain way as opposed to another way. I completely agree. But the, the, what, what triggers me at the end is that, you, that it took six years to write it. And I mean, I'm also, I'm coming from the technology industry. I've been working in this industry for 26 years. If I look back to 2012, six mm-hmm. years ago, and what the world is about today, I mean, it's like a completely different world. So how can you manage to write to, well, first of all, that the book took six years. Likely you have rewritten it five times. <laughs> well, we did rewrite it five times. That's the thing. The book, the book was that's the thing about writing a book and, and not writing a book. I'm not going to name it. Like it's, I was talking to a big fancy sort of fancy guru type person getting a lot of press recently. And we were, I was at a meeting with this person talking him, with him on the side in the hallway. And he told me that he'd written a book because it was just so important. And he'd written it in six or eight months or something like that. Like I just felt like compelled to write this book and get it out in six or eight months. So the world could be, could, you know, receive my wisdom. And I couldn't help but think, but how, I don't know. It just, it's, it was very different from the approach that we took. Our book was very much edited, rewritten multiple, multiple times, but each time sort of, you know, evolving in a way that a lot of the core ideas were carefully thought and debated. Both my co-author, by the way, I should have mentioned in the very beginning is Evan Selinger, who's a a philosopher of technology at RIT. And, And so but Evan and I ran every chapter by each other multiple times and edited and re-edited and researched continuously. But we also, at least a dozen other people, other reviewers, experts in the various fields we were digging into, because it's, it's a book that's interdisciplinary, were also commenting, you know, reading, commenting, reviewing, critiquing, telling us where we were going wrong, telling us mistakes we were making, making suggestions sure. about things we ought to consider more deeply. And that process is really why I think our book is not about the technology of 2012 or even the technology of 2018. You could take uh-huh. the an- analysis in our book and you could apply it in two, you know, 1920, and you could take the analysis yeah. in our book and apply it today, and I hope you'll be able to apply it in 50 years in terms of the underlying set of core ideas and, and the analytical and sort of thought frame like the the knowledge framework that's sort of in the book of course the examples will change and that is a difficulty i think you make a good point like so so we actually made this example and if i'm running on too long just cut me off i, I don't mind we have this example of a uh, of uh, something like a fitbit it's called an activity watch used in public schools to combat obesity and we're critical of the way in which this particular surveillance device was introduced into the school system and the purposes and reasons and thoughts that went into it. And I won't sort of preempt, you know, you can read the book if you want the details of it. But what's interesting is we use this as an example. And then we talk in the book a little bit later, a chapter later, we talk about extensions of that example. We basically say, you know, when you use a surveillance technology like a Fitbit in a school system to gather information about the activity levels of students, and everyone gets used to it, right? You sort of engineer a certain kind of normal normalization, a certain kind of acceptance of the technology. It's not hard to imagine how the use of this kind of technology could creep, like surveillance creep exactly. or nudge creep. And if it creeps, to, we you know, as so we spell out some uh, you know some hypotheticals, like what if, for example, just pure hypothetical, 
you know, the, instead of using activity watch, we start using another kind of uh, sensor that's monitoring other things like emotion, like sure. biometrics or brain activity or emotional activity. And so we use the hypothetical to sort of get the reader to see how the introduction of one technology may lead to other related technologies very easily, right? The first step makes the second, and third, and fourth steps much easier. But it turns out that by, you know, by the time the book was come out, some of those second and third steps have already been taken. They're already, sure. they're already being proposed. The tech's out there. Like there already are yeah. school systems using, you know, introducing technologies that monitor emotional reactions of children so that they can respond more immediately. And so the interesting thing is some of the examples will have to change over time, of course. And some of the things we thought were merely hypothetical are, you know, becoming real. Yeah. And that's, I think, everybody in our private and business life, we haven't got a clue what's, what technologies are already being used to monitor ourselves and to, uh, and to come up with, with data on this to, yeah, to predict things, to prevent things, or to make things even better. But if you look at, right. the kind of the, going back to the big idea of your book, or maybe a big which conclusion from it. <laughs> I was the, joking. I was joking. I said, which one? <laughs> <laughs> what do you believe is broken? What should we be most concerned about? You know, it's almost like the thing to be most concerned about is not understanding how complex the actual set of the dilemma is, oversimplifying it so that we can think that there's a quick fix. So it's kind of, I'm going to make an analogy to climate change for a second, because I think it's, this is a useful way to see what, you know, what the danger is, right? So the danger with thinking about climate change is to think that, that the causing, what's causing climate change, the problem is coal. So we just got to replace coal or it's cars or it's, I mean, if you actually really study climate change and look at, or, or actually pay attention to the scientists and, you know, policymakers and economists and whoever, everyone who's studying climate change, you'll realize that we have political and economic systems that have been built up over decades to provide us with lots of economic and technological and social benefits cheaply. You know, we've got a carbon fuel-based economy. And when you build up an entire economy and, and social system sort of reliant on a cheap fuel, it creates a very complex problem. It's not easy to unravel. It's not easy to solve. So understanding the nature of, and there's all kinds of cultural things, even ranging from things like food waste and its contribution to climate change. It's just, it's, it's intense. To diagnose the problem of climate change is not, it's too easy to oversimplify. You've got to deal with it as a complex sort of wicked problem. It turns out that once you do that, you kind of recognize that the set of solutions are actually also complex. There's a lot of different things we need to be doing collectively at different scales, globally, nationally, locally, as individuals, in our families. Like it's just, it's, it's really complex, but you, there's no escaping that, that complexity. To oversimplify is to bury your head in the sand and sort of ignore what's actually happening. I think the same exact thing is maybe the big, the big concern that we're kind of raising in our book. Our book's not about predicting the future. It's not saying we're necessarily going to end up as machines or that we are machines today. The book is about trying to help explain so we can even see the nature of the dilemma that we're, that we're in, that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with what we call humanity's techno-social dilemma. And so the, you know, 
if you think that, you know, when Cambridge Analytica and all of the stories about Cambridge Analytica surfaced, there's a rush to say, like, the problem is, you know, this, this, you know, Cambridge Analytica is grabbing data off Facebook. Or even before, like six or eight months ago, the big, the big one was addiction. Technology, you know, big tech is like big tobacco. Uh They are engineering addiction. And so the thing was, if we could just deal with addiction, you know, deal with the problem, big tech sort of use of tactics that are like big, you know, big techs and big tobacco, we kind of strain that analogy and say, that's the problem. The problem is, you know, engineered addiction is a part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. Even if you didn't have engineered addiction, you'd still have uh, Cambridge Analytica. The problem with thinking about Cambridge Analytica as the nature of the problem is that Cambridge Analytica is one of tens of thousands, probably, of similar companies running on top of and playing on top of and gathering data on top of the Facebook platform. That might lead you to think it's Facebook. But of course, Facebook is just one of multiple platforms, many different platforms operating at the applications layer of the internet that are engaging in a set of practices that enable third parties to gain access, you know, really sort of a lot of access to who we are and what we're doing on its platform. And there's a whole host of other things going on on Facebook that don't have anything to do with Cambridge Analytica in terms of how it shapes how we relate to each other and how we exchange information and the conversations we have. So it's not even, it's not just Cambridge Analytica. That's one of many. It's not just Facebook. It's one of many. And there's a lot of things that aren't even on the internet. And again, go back to the Activity Watch example or the Fitbits in schools. Fitbits in schools, the problem is not that they're internet connected. That's not, that's not the issue with there. The issue is the use of a technology in a particular context that is shaping the beliefs and preferences and behaviors of impressionable youth in an environment where they trust their parents and teachers and administrators and others to be sort of watching their backs and helping them develop. And so when the, when the, when children become sort of used to, you normalize bottle 24 seven bodily surveillance, that's an issue, but it's one that it has nothing to do with the internet or Facebook or engineered addiction or those other things. And yet, once you start seeing that there are all of these different kinds of related technologies, you have to say, well, what relates them? What is the commonality? Like what's going on that connects these various problems that are leading to a world in which what we'll call humanity's techno-social lemma, we're increasingly building a world that engineers us to be more machine-like and potentially puts our humanity at risk. And there's a couple yeah. that turns out it's, it's the logics. It's the underlying cultural and political and economic logics that are sort of driving progress. And in some ways, progress is great. And like the Steven Pinker, look, everything has gotten better along all variety of different data, you know, metrics that we can look at. And, and to some degree, in many ways, he has a lot to say about, you know, we are better off today than we have ever been in the past. And yet that doesn't mean it's inevitable that the progress we're, you know, the path we're on, the progress we're making in the last five years or last 10 years, or we will make in the next five, 10, 15, or 20 years is actually going to be net positive. And so you have to be able to step back and think, well, what are those logics driving technological, economic, you know, social progress? What is the nature of the path we're on and why are we on the path we're on? And that's where in the book, we spend quite a bit of time sort of focusing on the logic of efficiency, the logic of maximizing productivity, like optimizing 
using technology and social institutions to maximize the use of human labor. So we, we trace that back yeah. to sort of thinking of Frederick Taylor's scientific management of human beings in the workplace, where the idea is like we can get data, we can use data about task performance in the context of a workplace, say a factory. And with that data, we can, we can use management techniques to, to get as much as possible out of human labor because, you know, that will increase productivity. Once you adopt that logic, that mindset, we can use data to scientifically manage how labor is used to make it more productive. There's really no reason to limit that logic to a factory floor or, you know, uh, an assembly line. You can use the exact same logic to talk about hospitals and schools, but also how I exercise. It turns out that when I exercise to stay fit, I'm also laboring. I can be more efficient as a laborer. I can be more productive in my use of time and effort and energy to exercise if I can have it managed or I can manage it myself or I can have it managed scientifically through, you know, so you can apply the same logic in so many aspects of our lives that all of a sudden you start seeing, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, like that Taylorist productivity logic seems to be creeping into every aspect of our lives. And hey, that efficiency logic of, you know, Let's take certain kinds of signals of value and it'll help us allocate resources so we can become more efficient. You know, yeah. th those logics creep in and the technology enables. And then we have to think about, is it augmenting? Is it enabling us to become better in light of who we want to be? Or are we basically performing someone else's script? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, one of the, one of the, intro, the introduction quotes in your book says, that, well, the book outlines that we should be less scared of robots than becoming more robotic ourselves. And right. highlights and convinces that it's more important we embed technologies with human values before we embed us with their own. So what's your point or what's your conclusion there? Because that's what I see also. If I look, for example, back at my, my previous employer, we created enterprise resource planning type of solutions where a lot of it is, is about efficiency. And a big part of that efficiency is try to automate as much or as many non-value-adding repetitive tasks out of the process so that it will free people up. But what, what the whole construct of ERP software was in the past was to make people actually more robotic because you were actually, as a human, pushing the system forward step by step, screen by screen. And I think it's a good thing that robots take over there because that's not what humans should be all about. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't know if it's correct. I mean, I, I'm intrigued by the example. I think our take is certainly not anti-technology or don't ever look for efficiencies. It's more of a, it's often a difficult question for when you sort of adopt more of a Goldilocks approach and you're looking for something in between. So you certainly want to use technology to improve efficiency in a whole lot of different contexts, right? Efficiency yeah, sure. is generally a good thing for human welfare and social welfare. And same thing with productivity. And so it's not that you want to completely abandon, but you want to know, you want to be able to evaluate when the technology or deployment of technology in various contexts, very contextual, is going to have a direct and possibly lasting impact on what it means to be human or who you are as a human being or certain capabilities that human ha humans have that we collectively or that culturally a particular group actually values. So I'll give you an example of, a, of an area where 
my co-author and I actually disagree a little bit on this. Like we've had conversations quite a bit and it's like the thing about smart cars, right? So when I, when I think about smart yep. cars, in other words, self-driving cars or cars that are innate sort of, if we build, we want to build a smart transportation system, whether it's involving automobiles or it's, you know, public transit, there's a variety of ways to deploy technology and increase, increase human mobility in an intelligent way. But, you know, Let's just stick with automobiles for the, for the sake of just keep it simple. You know, as I see it, and I could be persuaded otherwise, I don't see the particular act of driving, the skills and capabilities that humans perform while driving a car to be in any way essential to our humanity or important to humanity or sort of necessary in any, in any sense. You know, there are a host of ethical and really big issues we talk about at length in the book that we need to deal with as we tra- if if and as we transition to a smart transportation system. And some of those concerns do have to do with our humanity. But it's not the it's not that the capability of driving is somehow essential or important. And so, if it's more efficient, safe, reliable, better for the environment and we save tons and tons of lives through avoided accidents, it, you know, we want to move in the direction of, of smart transportation systems. On the other hand, there's other, you know, I don't want mobility or navigation in general to be fully automated, right? So it's one thing to say, I want a self-driving car. I don't want to have a self-driving body. Like I don't no, need Chris. myself to be driven. Like I don't need to get from, I, I'm at work right now. I'm at Villanova. I live 20 minutes away. I don't need to sort of flip a switch or hit a button or speak a voice command that says, all right, I, I need to get home. Take me home so that my you know, mind can be entertained with video or you know, some virtual reality experience while myself you know, navigate, you know, smart system takes over and sort of manages my mobility and navigation of the world, whether it's walking, biking, or in a car. Now that sounds crazy. We're not there yet. Although as we talk about in the book, there are certain, some, certainly some technologies developed that are all, you know, steps in that direction. And so drawing the line between like, I want, I think the human capability to have situational awareness, to navigate the world, to actually experience the physical environment that they're in, that seems different to me than car driving skills, right? Driving that, that particular. Now, some people kind of disagree. And, and in the book, we take a pluralist approach. And I, I don't know that this is the time or you know place to sort of go into those details. But Evan, I certainly do not say that we know and we're going to tell you what matters about being human and which capabilities to prioritize. We are pr- quite explicit about the idea that, you know, different communities and cultures will have different priorities and they'll value things differently. And the real, you know, one of the big challenges over time is maintaining plurality. So people have the opportunity to be different, to make choices. Yeah. Well, one of the quotes that I underlined here in the book in the beginning is that was the proposal that the problem isn't the rise of smart machines, but the dumbing down of humanity. And I think yeah. the, the example you just gave is about that. And I think the, the potential is, 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 well, to use those smart machines in order to smarten up humanity or to, to, to well, to augment it, to make, uh, yeah. to make it so that's, better. That's, of course, the big, that's, the, that's the big challenge, I think, is, is there are some technologies that will absolutely enhance human capabilities and augment what it is that we're capable of doing. And there are others that we are, if we outsource certain 
capabilities or certain skills or certain tasks on a continuous way throughout our lives, there's a risk of them atrophying. And so the question is, where to draw the lines between those kinds of technology and how to evaluate it. So it's true, like, you know, the book is often, I often say this in talks too, like, there is a huge uproar in the tech policy sort of community discussion and very famous, rich, you know, very famous, rich white guys usually in the, in the sort of the AI sort of tech community saying, you know, we're worried about sentient AI, the emergence of sentient AI that will take over the world. And, you know, my response to that is that that may be important. That's not what our book's about. That may be important. I worry a little bit that it distracts or sort of, you know, draws attention in one direction and away from more immediate and pressing issues that have to do with, so I'm not interested, as you say, in, in, uh, in the emergence of intelligent or overly intelligent machines and how we engineer them. I'm more interested in how we're building, how the technologies we rely on and building are engineering unintelligent humans or humans that are indistinguishable or behave like, indistinguishable from or behave like simple machines. Right. Yeah. So, and then the question is, well, what does that mean? We use that in the in the latter part of the book to to describe a series of what we call reverse Turing tests or human focused Turing tests. And the idea is those are both conceptual. They like they help the reader. They help people see what technology could be doing to us, or or what I shouldn't even say technology does to us because technology is not an agent. Right. It's always humans who are developing, using, deploying technology. So it's either we're doing to ourselves or developers of technology. <laughs> There's always other humans involved. But it's, you know, we, the Turing test ideas, conceptually, it helps you think about how, what your relationship is to different technologies. But it also, I think, could over time become and can be used as, a, as an empirical approach to sort of evaluating the use of different technologies in different contexts. And you know, we, we initially start with, un, so the one thing about the simple, simplified sort of, you know, book blurb kind of idea, like we're interested in unintelligent humans, is it's not just intelligence. We, we start with intelligence. We talk about certain kinds of intellectual cognitive capabilities that homo sapiens human beings have and that are arguably at risk of sort of disappearing, atrophying, sort of not being exercised in a world in which we've outsourced our thinking or tasks to technology or technical systems. And so we talk about rationality, irrationality, and we talk a bunch about common sense. Like those are, and we could do a bunch of others that we mention in the chapter that we're hoping other people will explore in further, you know, future work and stuff. But then we also talk about non, you know, some things that aren't just about sort of how intelligence. We talk about relate sociality, our ability to relate to each other, right? The the ability yeah. to to read social cues when you're talking or seeing or interacting with someone. You can do that. We have as human beings developed a variety of different capabilities that allow us to relate to each other socially. It's sort of a fundamental, I would argue, and at least for me, it's one of the values that I prioritize pretty highly about being human. And yet we also can outsource much of that to technology. There are technologies already being developed and deployed, but there's many on the horizon that can take a whole bunch of data, whether it's you know biometric data or otherwise. Those are the inputs that an algorithm can then spit out suggested responses about how you should behave and, and, and sort of 
manage those things on your behalf. And that to us is something we want to pay attention to. And so, the, you know, the reverse Turing test would get us to think about that. Yes. And of course, we go beyond intelligence and sociality and we talk about free will and some other things. But I'll, I'll, if you want, we could talk about that more, but I'll just. Well, I mean, hold at the end, it's, um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Definitely interesting to, to hear the, the, various, the various ideas around this. But what triggers me at the end is if it's about re engineering humanity and if, if, if we start looking at what the future holds, my perspective at the end is, is that it's, it's about you know, scaling people. Even if you have the not so in, intelligent people, we, with technology, you can make them more intelligent. The super intelligent, you can relieve them from doing the mundane work. So from, from all the conclusions that you, or all the, the, the ideas that you got in your book, what advice would you give? What, what, what are the top three advice to start doing different? For example, from a, if, if we start from a software development perspective, what should software, business software vendors start doing different in terms of thinking, starting points? Any recommendations yeah. on that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I thought the, at the end of the book, we've got some a litany of, sort of suggestions, and they vary. I mean, some of them are policy-oriented and at the very large level, and some of them are more practical and applied and, and individual. And I think one of, the, one of the things I'd say is that think, stop and think about what it is you're trying to achieve. So in software development and, and technological design, there's a bunch of sort of common principles that I think made a lot of sense, and they still make sense sometimes, but they made a lot of sense in the 1990s and 2000s, and they became sort of almost like sort of mantras. And it's you know, things like we should be using technology, we should, whenever possible, we should reduce transaction costs. Like let's make things seamless as possible. The, the user experience should be seamless, quick, and so you think seamless interconnection, seamlessly interoperable, and I, in one of the things we say in the book is, while that sometimes makes still makes sense, in many ways, in some other kind, maybe it doesn't. Sometimes you actually want to engineer friction into your technology when doing so provides the the human or the or the user with an opportunity to stop and think when it actually may empower them to sort of understand what they're doing. And possibly, you know, maybe head in a direction that's other than what the designer is hoping for. So, one example we talk a lot about in the book is, is yeah, is the is contracts and electronic contracting and, and sort of con- the click I agree interface, the interface through which people create legally binding relationships with software vendors, websites, smart t- television manufacturers, and increasing with the Internet of Things and deployment of a whole bunch of technologies in a variety of people's lives, there's going to be uh, strong incentives, economic incentives, to have quick click-through style. So you reduce the transaction costs so that it makes it as easy as possible for the consumer to install and get things up and running, and, and sort of you don't really want them deliberating about anything. But you know, so one caution I would suggest is, you know, actually we should engineer friction into some of those systems so that people actually into our contracting and our processes so that people actually the most salient and important aspects of the of the proposed relationships are actually made, uh, you know, transparent, 
but also substantively relevant to the person who's entering into an agreement. So that's like one of the simple things. Another sort of similar one is to reject is reject the, you know, not everything needs to be interconnected. Interconnection is great from in many reasons that it can improve competition. It, it can make, enable interoperability. It can have large network effects so the more the merrier on a particular platform by bringing more people together. And a lot of those things can be great. On the other hand, when we're thinking about supposedly smart tech, it's not clear that my smart toaster actually needs to be smart, to, do, to add any added functionality that we could possibly genuinely legitimate for a smart toaster. It's not clear that that ever needs to speak outside of the house. Or, or in other words, it doesn't need to communicate any data to be smart outside of the home. Now the tendency is that, well, it's, you know, let's interconnect it and let's make it internet enabled and let's have it in the cloud and blah, blah, blah. But you know, people as consumers, but also people developing these technologies should stop and think about whether a lot of those things actually make sense. Like you should, as a default, you know, think about whether, you know, collecting and managing data outside the home, if you're doing smart home stuff is actually justifiable and necessary for the function you're supposedly adding. And like, we might be able to innovate with this later in the future. That's a self-serving. And, you know, that's the thing is many of these technologies can be developed with sort of a very self-serving motivation. And that's fine. You know, that's just basic, you know, markets and their standard operating procedures. But, you know, when you're going into someone's home or you could be in the hospital or it can be in the workplace or it could be somewhere else. We need to start thinking quite carefully about whether we have the trust and whether we've earned the trust of the people with whom we're interacting. And if you want to maintain a trusting relationship with your customers, then maybe you need to sort of treat them as, you know, human beings and sort of engage them in a more meaningful way. Even if that means it's a little slower Maybe you have, you know, it's the tire transaction costs. These right. are just some of the, you know, examples that, you know, there's, there's plenty of others we can. We well, can at the end, it's about bringing humanity back into the process. And yes. I agree with you, certainly with your, your, your first example, that that's very recognizable from where I came from, the, uh, the enterprise research planning industry, that all of those screens have been designed with the transaction in mind and making things faster and smarter. And, but at the end, after 20, 25 years, we haven't, we haven't really gained a lot. And if, right. you, if, you, if you would take the, the opposite approach, you would likely get a lot further, a lot easier. One of the examples that, that has been a favorite for me for a couple of, for a couple of years now is, for example, why, why would we have to put in our time in, the, in timesheets? Why not have systems just propose it? But no, every time there's a lot of money involved in designing a new better, smarter, simpler timesheet management screen that everybody hates anyway. And your example, again, around connecting things to the internet and connecting things to mobility. When when I bought my my new coffee machine recently, an espresso machine, it had the opportunity to create a cup of coffee with 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 my smartphone. Well, who is waiting for that? Because if I want to kind of press the second button for the second cup of coffee for my wife, still have to go to the kitchen to, to, to replace the cup. So it's, it doesn't really help. It's just right. engineered I, it, because technology is there. 
Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think so. I have a piece I think going to come out in Scientific American soon. I have a couple I've done recently online. I'm, I'm working on one now, but it's about let's take smart. Whenever you see the word smart, insert supposedly in front of it. <laughs> yeah. And then and then think really hard about what people mean by smart. Like what's smart for cars and smart for toasters means totally different things. True. So ask yourself with every technology that's suppo- that's supposedly smart, who's smarter? How are they smarter? Does the does the ad, supposed the added intelligence actually dev- deliver direct benefits to whom? Who benefits by the additional intelligence? A lot of people. This goes to the augmenting point that you've been you asked about earlier. People presume that smart tech makes the owner, the user, the customer smarter. But I would suggest that the vast majority of the time, the user's made dumber, or at least isn't improved, augmented at all. What's the intelligence, any additional intelligence is largely in some other party. It's either the, you know, the owner, the manufacturer, the manager, the tech, or it's other third parties with whom they're interacting. Now, maybe, maybe if customers and, you know, and, and users are conceptualized as members of a cognitive system that includes a network of different parties, you can kind of say, well, the, the, the net system is made more intelligent and you're a part of the system and you benefit. But then the question is, are you actually benefiting? Are you, ta- are you participating in that cognitive system or that intelligence system or intelligence community? Is it a knowledge commons of which you are a member or are you real, or, or is the relationship something else? And, and there's so much taken for granted assumptions because of these very, very strategic and manipulative use of metaphors like smart. I mean, I could give you a couple, I mean, you could talk about cloud and replace the word cloud whenever you hear it with someone else's computer. <laughs> so whenever you say oh, yeah. the word cloud, ask yourself, replace it with someone else's computer. And so, you know, I'm cloud services. You mean services on someone else's computer, or you say, I'm going to store my memories or my photos or my data in the cloud. What you're saying is I'm going to store my memories or my photos or my data on someone else's computer. As soon as you say that, now there may be efficiencies. Of course, there could be efficiencies for me storing stuff on someone else's computer. That's fine. I'm not saying there aren't some benefits or efficiencies or reasons one might want to do it. But if you say it that way, instead of using this like amorphous word, the cloud, which is just a metaphor to confuse and obscure what's going on, then you start saying, well, who is this someone else? Is it the party I'm interacting with or is it a third party? What are their security measures? Who else can 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 obtain access to someone else's computer? There's a whole host of other questions that suddenly surface where, and again, this could be both for customers and users and people who are, you know, just lay users of tech, but also who get kind of bamboozled by the word cloud. But it also goes for software developers because software developers often sort of resort to like cloud services and the word cloud works a kind of magic, right? It works this kind of magic. We're like, oh, well, yeah, that that means there's all these associations and meanings that go along with it. But you got to ask yourself, are they actually legit? Do you trust them? Is there a reason you trust this particular quote-unquote cloud provider? And, you know, some of them are. I'm not saying that all 
all companies like you know, a, you know Amazon Cloud Services is probably the most you know secure system you're going to rely on. I'm not, it, the, the point is really because you get these metaphorical memes that act as sort of epistemological black boxes. You, they may make a lot of sense in a particular context in a particular you know setting, but they creep so broadly across so many other things that everybody starts to use them. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't even know if anyone understands what they're talking about anymore. And that's a big problem that we have today. And I completely yep. agree. I see it every single day that these words are just overhyped. And yeah, I mean, it's, it seems to be part of the whole marketing game. You need, you need to have those words. Otherwise you're out of the game and you're, you're not, you're not interesting anymore. So I think we are getting yeah, close to the hour right now, and that's I want to to get to a conclusion. So, if you look at your, your your the book and the way you've written it, what's next? What's your greatest aspiration that this book will will create for for, for the marketplace? Well, I I will tell you the honest truth. I don't. Well, I want to say I don't know. My greatest aspiration was, or maybe still is, but it certainly was. I thought the book could be comparable to, or have the kind of effect that Silence, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring had, or maybe Piketty's Capital in 21st Century, but I think more like Silent Spring, sort of a wake-up call that genuinely is both, you know, a wake-up call, a call to action, a call for resistance, a call for collective governance or cultural change, yeah. sort of the kind of book that if people read it and read it widely and started discussing it and actually engaged with the content of it, we could really question the world we're building for our children and for future generations. And it, so the biggest aspiration I had is that, you know, I don't want royalties. You could, you, I, I'd be more than willing to sort of donate any royalties to get from the book to whomever, I don't, to charity. It doesn't matter. It's not about money. It's about if the book could be widely read and distributed and talked about, like, this is just my aspiration. I thought it could yeah. sort of have an impact on like a genuine impact on the conversations we're having and sort of deepen the conversations in a way that could be meaningful. You know, that hasn't quite happened. The book is, you know, it, it it's doing perfectly fine as an academic book. I'm still waiting for the big set of like for reviews to come out and for it to have a broader like reach. So I aspire to that. What's next for me is I, you know, I'm still giving book talks and traveling and trying to spread the word. And I'm writing a lot of shorter pieces, some for the Scientific Americans and hopefully for other places to sort of, you know, build off some of the ideas in the book and sort of explain them with different examples and reach a broader audience. I'm also, you know, working on some grant proposals to do research, empirical research to study some of the things that we are, we've talked about in the book. I think there's a lot of stuff. The book has plenty of open research problems and, and questions that could be studied collaboratively, collaboratively, I should say, with different people. And so that's another sort of future plan for me. And then, you know, as I've often done, like I'm already starting to think about another five, seven year, like some other research, another big research idea that relates to all the other ones I mentioned at the very beginning. And that has to do with how do we know what we want? Yeah. How do the political market and social systems that we rely on 
manifest our demands for what we want. So like, you know, the political system does so through voting in a sense, the market system through price signals. There's different ways in which we collectively figure out what we what it is we we want, what our values are, what kind of world we want to build. And so I want to sort of think really deeply about that. And then I think the I guess the third piece of it is how to evaluate how these systems are working in a world in which techno-social engineering is occurring, where our preferences and beliefs about the very systems themselves is subject to those techno-social engineered influences. And that's that's a very difficult problem. Okay, yeah, it's a very difficult problem to address and then to uh, create action. Well, thank you very much yeah. well, for your, your insights. I mean, I've got, I wrote down a great number of points that I was inspired by. And uh, I think the, the, the advice at the end towards what ISVs could do or software, and the software engineers could do to, to make better systems, I think will open up a couple of eyes as well. I would recommend everybody in the, in the software industry to, to, to read this book because oh, it opens your eyes uh, about where, where to take things. But yeah, at the end, it's all about, you know, the things we don't know about yet. And it's of what's possible these days. Right. That's, yeah, that's, that's both inspiring and it's also sometimes frightening. But I think yeah. re-engineering humanity to see, to see what, what, it, what systems could do to help people not get, to, to dump them down, but to make them actually smarter or to combine that together. That's where a lot yep. of the potential lies. So yep, thank you I very agree. much. Been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. The pleasure was fully on my side, Brett. And for everybody listening today, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Brett Frischmann, author of the book, Reengineering Humanity. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. 
Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.